Welcome everyone. This is the Untitled Podcast, Episode 1. We will look at key international issues every week. And this week we have decided to look at the Allied bombings in Syria after the alleged chemical attack. And we have with us today Roberts, Rehan, Fahim and Asilai. They are all from different parts of the world and they will contribute in different ways as the podcast continues. And I will be the host today uh, and my name is Raghav. So I will start by giving a brief history of what happened in Syria and bring us up to date with the Allied bombings in Syria. So the civil war or civil unrest in Syria started in 2011. This started primarily as peaceful protests and subsequently, you know, it developed into something a bit more violent with both the protesters and the government blaming each other for the attacks on each other. As this was brewing on, by 2011, we found, late 2011, we start finding that there is more and more armed conflict in the region between the government and also the uh, protesters who have then become you know, rebels and started their own rebel army. So this was the Free Syrian Army, as it was called then. It was made primarily of defectors from the Assad's uh, regime. I mean, uh, they defected from the president's or, you know, the officially controlled army and started their own armed force. This force was uh, supported well by allied forces. When I mean allied forces, these are Western allies primarily you know from the united states united kingdom and their and their allies so this was the key allies of that moment there are also arab allies to this arab allies of the united states like saudi arabia and qatar and united arab emirates and so on supported this free syrian army and the goal at that point was to oust uh, bashar al-assad the current syrian president from power and install a more democratic government, according to the Allies. What was just a two-pronged attack or a two-pronged conflict became multi-pronged when you know religious groups started their own religious groups started uh, their own combating with or you know attacking the government as well. So at this point, the key front was Al-Nusra front. And this was uh, supposedly a branch of the Al-Qaeda. But a major shift in the forces came when ISIS or ISIL came into the picture. So this was when uh, most countries, including Western forces and also the rebels, decided that ISIL was a bigger threat uh, to not just uh, the current existing government in Syria, but all population in Syria. And hence, everybody started joining forces. And this was also the time where the Kurdish forces joined the fray and they formed something called as the Syrian Democratic Front. So now we have four major players in the region. We have the Syrian government's Arab army, or the Syrian Arab army that is supporting the current president Bashar al-Assad and its current allies are Iran 
the Hezbollah and Russia. And on the other hand, you have the Free Syrian Army, which is being supported by the West and also by Turkey and some Arab allies. And up north, you have the Syrian Democratic Front, which was initially supported by all the existing allies at that point. I mean, all the NATO allies at that point supported the Syrian Democratic Front, but after some time they lost support, especially Turkey since 2016, because of the Kurdish cause, felt that they can't support the Syrian Democratic Front anymore. But these forces are still being supported by the US and its allies in the West because they hold a key position against Bashar al-Assad. And finally, we have the ISIS or ISIL. Uh, they are not being supported by any international organization, but they have indiscriminately attacked every other international allies or, you know, the Syrian government as well. But their size has reduced greatly in the past year, and they only hold about 6% of the Syrian territory at this point. The SDF holds about 20% or more. Uh, the FSA holds a very small percentage as well, and the rest of now the majority of the country is being held by the Bashar al-Assad government. Now, what we are going to look at is the alleged usage of chemical weapons in one of the suburbs close to the capital. It's called the Eastern Gauta region, and a place called Dharma was attacked in early April with chemical weapons or alleged chemical weapons usage was found. There are two sides to the story. The Syrian government, along with the Russian ally, state that, yes, they had bombed the region, but they had only bombed rebel installations, and it was the rebel installations that had chemical weapons, and their depot was blown up. That was one version. The other version, as provided by the Free Syrian Army and also by the West, is that it was a planned chemical attack usage on Syrian civilians by the Syrian government because they are in the opposition. So these are two versions of it. Based on the evidence that the West had collected, France, the UK and the US launched attack on key installations that they felt stored chemical weapons and were used for chemical research. And this was done without a resolution of the UN Security Council. So now we're going to look at whether this action was legal under international law. And we'll also look at some of the key policy issues that come afterwards. Roberts will now explain the international issue. Yes, thank you, Raghav. <clears throat> so as you know, the, the alleged chemical attacks... Uh, were carried out on two, two stages. The first one was uh, on a Saad Bakery and the second one was on the Matrix Square. There have been three UN Security Council votes on three resolutions to, to deal with this issue, to carry out an in investigation. However, they have been failed due to uh, Russia's vetoes and as well as uh, disagreements between the sides. And the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons has uh, started and uh, has launched an investigation. They have made a fact-finding mission, and uh, which has been deployed in Syria actually on the 14th of April when the Allied response took place. 
but uh, their uh, their uh, investigation has not yet been uh, has has not yet been uh, completed. Therefore, we we cannot confirm whether the the chemical attacks were actually used, despite of the media's uh, claims that they have been. So, uh, under international law, there are various issues to address. I'll I'll start with the with the Allied response to this. As as we know, under the current international regime, under the UN Charter Article Two Four, uh, the the use of force is prohibited, and the, the states should refrain from the use of force. However, there are two exceptions to that. The first one is under Article Thirty Nine of the UN Charter. If uh, the UN Security Council has has agreed, if the states have agreed to use force, and the, the UN Security Council has endorsed the states to do so. The second exception is under Article Fifty One, uh, as self defense. Uh, it is, it is, it is a fact that uh, the Allied the Allied forces have not have not uh, acquired the the UN Security Council's endorsement, as the as they have felt vote on that, as well as it hasn't really been a self defense. Uh, within the within the terms and interpretation how it should be the allied forces have actually argued that this has been a humanitarian intervention which has been stated by the uk's government uh, we'll turn now to the customary international humanitarian law uh, and to in order to see what what are the the possibilities to intervene in a state in a cases the the UN Security Council resolution has not been has not been passed. So under the the Rule seventy four of international humanitarian law, the use of chemical weapons is prohibited. So if a state has been used has been used chemical weapons, the international community should have the right under the customary international law to intervene in a state. However. Cannot confirm, neither deny that the chemical weapons have been used as the official uh, official uh, documents have not been presented by the by the relevant organizations to confirm this. There are other other uh, customary international rules that have been possibly breached by the Assad regime. Also, the Rule One, which is the principle of distinction between civilians and combatants, as as the media reports that eighty four civilians have lost their lives due to the due to the alleged chemical attacks therefore this would be a if confirmed by the OPCW then this would be a breach of this on this rule as well a rule to violence aimed at spreading terror and among the civilian population is also a rule that has been possibly violated by the Assad regime if confirmed and there are other uh, principles which are which should be taken into account, such as distinction, military necessity, and proportionality. So this would be for the for the debate on uh, on the international community when the official reports on the alleged chemical attacks are either confirmed or denied. And there are various humanitarian doctrines with regard to the intervention. There has been the principle to responsibility to protect which is a principle developed by the international community to address cases when a state fails to adhere to its primary obligations towards the protection of its citizens. And this can be cases of, of genocide or other large scales of violations of human rights. 
and uh, such interventions are carried out to protect, defend or rescue people from gross abuse of human rights from their own government. However, they, they, they have not been enshrined in, uh, in the binding legal instruments. These are doctrines that, that states could resort to or, or leave aside. But there has been a kind of a developed state practice within this regard where states have resorted to this. There have been uh, international judgments in the International Court of Justice, the Nicaragua case, which, which states that humanitarian assistance is, uh, not only must be limited to the purpose of hallowed in the practice of the Red Cross, namely to prevent and alleviate human suffering and to protect life, health and to ensure respect for human being. And that uh, there is also a, state, a court opinion that to enforce human rights, the states, uh, the state should act, should refrain from the actual use of armed force within this, this regard. However, this this doesn't go doesn't go hand in hand with the with the with the various humanitarian law doctrines, and also it must be taken into account that this. This particular interpretation applied to the circumstances in Nicaragua, where there wasn't uh, genocide or uh, any other such gross violations as in Syria. Therefore, uh, I personally strongly believe that the Allied response, subject to the humanitarian doctrines and uh, and uh, various legal instruments, was permitted. Thank you. Okay, uh, but I wanted to ask, uh, you know. Don't you think it's the attack is a bit premature because uh, we don't know if uh, the bombing was actually chemical weapons that was used because the OPCWA uh, no, has uh, OCWA sorry has not really uh, you know found something yet. I mean they've just started the investigations if I'm right. So uh, at this point, do you think the Allied intervention was a bit too premature? It could be possible that the, the Allied attack was too premature, as, as I previously mentioned. That yes, the OPCW has not has not uh, made a, an official conclusion on whether the chemical weapons were used or or whether they were not used. Uh, however, I I believe that uh, well, there are, there are various complexities within the Syrian issue with regard to the chemical weapons, and this has not been the first time when they have been used. So it's. It is, it is difficult to, to say whether it was too premature, as well, the as the Allied, the the main reason why the Allied forces used the the attacks were to prevent Assad's capability to use the chemical weapons in the future. So, I mean, there are there are arguments against this and arguments for it. So, okay, uh, Rehan, I wanted to ask you a question. This conflict has been going on some time. You said you, you, you are interested in the pan-Arab issue. Uh, how do you think uh, this plays out generally in the minds of people from there? I mean, if, do they support the Allied bombing there or do they not support the Allied bombing there? Uh, Mr. Rago, I don't really think it's really a question about Arab nationalism. I think it was uh, a question about... Uh, the whole idea of our spring was a question about uh, wanting change, uh, wanting more civil rights. And in this context, we can't really have um, Arab nationalism as many, many uh, fighters on the ground uh, may not even be uh, from the same region or they may be uh, Rish, Kurdish. 
Um, I believe that uh, there are two sides to uh, Syria, um, or even more than that, uh, because whenever I, I've met people from Damascus who have told me that everything is fine in Damascus, and so it really depends uh, upon which area of Syria you are in, and uh, furthermore, which social class you are in, and then uh, how much money do you have, and uh, so it's really dependent upon many factors. Um, I don't believe that the Syrian people as a nationality have a unified opinion about Bashar al-Assad. So this is my, my opinion. Okay. Uh, Fahim, uh, could you briefly explain, because some people you know, claim this is a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia and the region to an extent, though you know some call it Cold War between the US and Russia as well. But to take up the issue of Saudi Arabia and Iran, what is the key reason behind the Cold War? Uh, to my personal opinion, I would like to say all different parties have their own interest in the particular part of uh, Syria. Uh, if we can say about uh, allied uh, attack uh, in Syria from uh, different parties like US, uh, France, UK. So basically they are against the Russia because they have their own interests, whether the Cold War going on between also uh, UK and uh, Russia because of that chemical nerve attack with the Russian spies. So because of that, it's also it was premature. And about uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, they have interest that like the minority and the majority are Shia and uh, Sunni Muslims. It also part of that. So basically, I would say it's like part of all parties have their own interest in that Syria Syrian conflict. So more like there are all innocent people who are suffering from others' interest or killing other people. It's that's against uh, international human rights law or humanitarian law. Okay. So what we are seeing now is that it has now gone from a conflict that has you know, essentially about rights for themselves to more into full-blown or at least half-blown conflict between international powers at this point. Would, would you... I think that's an agreeable statement, isn't it, Robert? Yes, certainly, Rodolfo. And uh, I believe that the, the, the primary two superpowers of the world, the US and Russia, has been especially involved with this and we can we can see that also in the in the three resolutions that the states were trying to to reach in the UN Security Council, uh, following the alleged chemical attacks, where the, the, all the resolutions failed. They were not they were not able to reach a consensus on the on the issue, and they they were in a in a disagreement on whether the whether actual uh, any attacks took place in Syria at that date, whether chemical or not. Yes, I mean, that is also the case. I mean, I understand that there have been, or there has been no consistency as to who's right, who's factually accurate, or who's factually wrong. And this issue goes beyond just the facts, I think. But, but you mentioned that under international law, that, you know, you need to, if you want to intervene, usually there's a case of being invited by the legitimate government, and in this case, even though there's a difference on opinion as to 
the support or not to support for Assad. Everybody accepts that he is the actual government in Syria. So wouldn't you think the Russians have a better claim in stating that their intention or their intervention is legally right, whereas the intervention of the Allies is not? Well, if you look to the issue in this context, Russia has has a stronger position in uh, in terms of uh, having been have been invited by the by the official government of Syria. However, we 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 should not forget the the international norms and human rights which each state must observe and uh, abide by. And uh, the Western powers should not be uh, should not be like blind on the on the issues that are happening in Syria and. Even though, even though the uh, the official government has invited Russia uh, to, to to present their interests in the region and to protect them, uh, we must we must not forget the the people who are fighting for freedom in the state, and we, which is one of the reasons why the conflict actually began. So, yes, uh, but the question here comes, but uh, about Syria is party to quite a few international treaties against the use of chemical weapons yes. and also against uh, crimes against humanity yes, right can you briefly explain what they are party to they are they are party to to the all, all geneva conventions with regard to chemical weapons and uh, with regard to to combatant status and uh, with civilians they are part to the to other conventions in relation to to the use of noxious substances and basically they are part of all the the relevant uh, Chemical weapon conventions, and therefore they are they are they should abide by them. So what happens is that in case in the future the uh, OPCW actually produces a result or produces a document stating that you know the usage of chemical weapons is confirmed, will the status change from now? Because right now, legally speaking. The Allied bombing had, is based on very thin legal international legal grounds. But what happens if they produce a document, if the evidence is proven that Syria has used chemical weapons, then who becomes the violator then? Well, if if they would be found uh, in breach, if they would be found by the OPCW in breach of the of the by, by using the chemical weapons and uh, these substances, then they would have been violated the conventions, the, the relevant conventions on chemical weapons, and then they should uh, definitely be be kind of brought to, to justice. Yes, yeah. with Rahan, please have your say on this. If I may ask a question, if the OPCW does find uh, evidence supporting that, uh, does that retrospectively give the Allies the right to intervene, or do they still have to go to the United Nations Security Council? They still would have to go to the UN Security Council as as the they use a force under international law. And what would you believe would be the result to going to the United Nations Security Council? Well, it would be. I believe it would be. It wouldn't change anything as as. Uh, as currently it has been by the Russia's veto. So. Yes, but I would like to add uh, to this issue because the Allies are now f- trying to find uh, the means of working uh, or working around the Security Council because they are having a meeting or planning to ne- use diplomatic means to use the UN General Assembly and not the Security Council, which means that the Security Council resolution 
obviously can be vetoed because Russia is one of the involved parties. But this was also a method that was used during the times of Cold War, where you know they could not pass a resolution in the Security Council. They gen they gen passed a General Assembly resolution, though it doesn't have the same uh, legal context or the same legal might, but it still is agreeable for most in most of the international community because it is not one-sided at this point. Uh, I believe the last time it was uh, used was uh, what was called the Atkinson Plan or Uniting for Consensus and it was used uh, to bypass uh, the Soviet Union veto uh, in order to invade Korea uh, and I believe that was a disaster which is well documented in history and that's that brings about a question of whether Russia's veto and does bring a certain sort of neutrality to uh, the United Nations Security Council affairs. I mean, yes. I mean, uh, the question of you know whether a country's veto pro- brings about a certain amount of resolution. It could also be you know there have been resolutions in the past brought by Russia which have also been vetoed by the Allied members. So it works as a balance on both instances. But so thanks for bringing up the Korean issue because that will be our next episode. We will be speaking about Korea. So Rehan has been very kind enough to slightly nudge us in for us. But yes, that is episode number two. We will speak more about the Korean issue there. But the question here is we do not know what the outcome is going to be. And it also depends on whether the allies will be able to garner enough support on this issue. As I said, it's not just Russia that is uh, you know, wanting to support the Assad regime in Syria. You also have Iran, who is one of the players. You have other players uh, in the region and also outside the region that want uh, some amount of stability there. I mean, some have changed their positions. Uh, for example, uh, the Turkish government, which was completely against Assad's in the earlier stages of the conflict, have now decided uh, to engage with Assad as well, uh, as long as there is a resolution to the conflict uh, provided, I mean, with each country, which is in their interest. But yes, so we do not know how this is going to pan out in the future, but at least we do know that uh, that is an option that is on the table for the Allies at this point. And I would like to you know, ask Asilai a quick question. Uh, you, have, you are from a country that's part of the post-Soviet structure. So say if the Russian government states something that uh, they, are, they are not involved in any activities, how should we take it? Should we take it with a pinch of salt or can we take them for their word? You mean uh, what will be position of our country? No, Uh, what I mean to say is, uh, what I mean to ask is say the the Russian government uh, states that uh, the Syrian government did not use any chemical weapons. But it seems most of the Western world and Western media doesn't buy into this. But from a person who's from a different region, how do you see the news coming out of Russia? When the Russian government says or states anything, what do you see? How do you feel about it? Uh, from my country, of course, we can see that uh, we will be in the position uh, for Russia. Okay. Because we have big influence from Russian media. And it depends on the person, I think. Okay. In general, I mean, it's not about the person, but yes, so you, you seem to say that there is more Russian influence, so usually the Russian word is taken yeah. for granted. Yeah. Okay, so that's, you know, different. So as, as we said, uh, 
this will not be easy for the allies you, you we have different viewpoints sure. here so we have allies that support russia as well and allies that support uh, syria maybe allies that support iran for various reasons because these are you know players on assad's side so it's not easy for the western governments to you know just have a unified plan where they can say that oh everybody will vote enough even a general assembly resolution could possibly fail then the question comes as to once again the legality of the old question i mean generally intervention has to be through some international means otherwise it becomes one sided intervention and the legality comes into question so roberts do you have anything to state if some if the general assembly resolution also fails what do you think is a legal context or how can the allies justify themselves after that thank you very much yes i would like to comment first on the on the actual on the un uh, general assembly resolutions shortly uh, as you know under the international law only the un security council resolutions are binding mm-hmm. so and um, it is stated in the un charter that the use of force should be authorized by the un security council as well therefore i the the vote by the general assembly if it passes it it is arguable that it actually provides ground for the for actual armed intervention as it 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 more provides the kind of the state practice or the the kind of the, the way states are agreed to but not actual grounds for uh, intervention however if the if the resolution fails in the general assembly well the states the they don't have anything left to be honest uh, except for the grounds as they have they have now gone to uh, without acquiring any, uh, any resolutions they have intervened on their own but under the claims of you know that they're supporting humanitarian cause yes. there is human suffering so as says humanity we cannot just keep quiet when yes. there is human suffering yes then then it would uh, be the it would rely on the customary humanitarian law information yes. yes but if it is you know the question of you know you know it's a crime against humanity and hence we are going in why is that the allies didn't bomb during previous instances of similar uh, you know chemical weapon usage in syria this is not the first instance yes so this is not the first instance why now that becomes a question isn't it because that is what the detractors will say why now and i think this was also a question you know even in the british parliament uh, the opposition wanted mm-hmm. to know why there was intervention now what was the actual reasoning behind it so it's not just you know one side but uh, do you think there's any specific cause of it being right now it i mean it's your own opinion we just yeah. for people to understand what could be one of the reasons for the attacks right now it it is definitely an important question and uh, i personally believe it's is due to the uh, to the government changes in the in the western countries first of all the the elections in the us uh, and uh, president donald trump coming to power also france uh, president macron and i believe it's it's kind of the chemistry between them both that that has kind of led to this intervention out now says and uk has been uh, has been a reliable ally for them for uh, for years so it i believe this has been the time when they when they could reach a reasonable consensus to to demonstrate their power and their willingness to enforce international law you know if i may also answer this question i, I believe that it has a lot to do with the uh, nerve attacks uh, conducted allegedly conducted by russia on the soil of the united kingdom and it being as sort of revenge uh but f- also i would say that the uh 
West after World War II is quite sensitive to uh, to um, to their history of appeasements when Hitler was taking country after country and they were not doing anything. So uh, in a way, the West is sensitive to this and doesn't want uh, a Russia to really establish a foothold within Syria. Uh, or to uh, give them uh, carte blanche uh, to let them do whatever they want. So you're saying, I mean, from what we've recently discussed in the past few minutes, it seems that this has got nothing to do with the humanitarian crisis in Syria. It seems more like an issue where, you know, one set of countries or one group not happy with other groups' activities. It's It's more... Uh, you know, power play and politics rather than law itself. Would you say that's the case? Well, yes, Mr. Rucker. One of my professors actually told me that human rights is actually one of the lowest priority in the world community's agenda. So that's okay. the unfortunate reality. I don't know if it's fortunate reality or unfortunate reality, but it seems that some people do buy into that argument. But what's your take for him? Do you think this is not just a legal issue, but more of a political issue here? Yes, Mr. Rado, I completely agree with you. It's more like politics because all parties have their own different uh, interests, as I previously mentioned before. And uh, as I, I would like to continue that talk which Rehan already mentioned from UK side because uh, they want to counterpart Russia because of the spies' nerve attack. So that's why they they took part in the alleged attack in Syria and about Russia, um, UK and. Sorry uh, about US. It's because of the election, and uh, Trump wants to show something to the world that he can do whatever he wants. So this this can be the fact as well. And rest of them are already there, the allies together since few years. So yeah, they just want to show to the Russia as a counterpart in Syria. So that's why it's more about politics, not about. Uh, legal issue. Okay, I mean, uh, because recently, it's funny that though the conflict is going in Syria, uh, Israel and Russia have said that there could be consequences because uh, Russia is planning to provide uh, S-400 uh, anti-aircraft missiles to Syria and Israel feels Israel is threatened uh, and both sides have barbed words. So it seems that Though the conflict is happening elsewhere, it uh, seems to be the, the play where the Cold War is back in action. You know, it was very similar where none of the battlefields during the Cold War were either in the US or in Russia, but in territories that had uh, or that were influenced by these regions. So it seems that we wanted to look at the legal issues. Now we have gone into the realm of politics. It seems that everything is not purely legal in this instance. And we would like to state that, you know, to conclude that there are a lot of issues that are happening uh, with Syria. The Allied bombing is just the latest in a series of things. And it is an issue that is quite complicated in the sense there are four groups as such. I mean, in a conflict with two groups and multiple players, it's a bit of a headache. We have a conflict that has four groups uh, with different supporters and the supporters keep changing as well. And it seems that elections in different countries also have impact on how Syria functions, for example, we mentioned about Trump's election and how he has changed the policy from 
just training and supporting uh, the moderate groups in Syria. That was the policy of the U.S. under Obama. Now they seem to have direct attacks. Uh, I mean, the policy of bombing terrorist organizations was happening even under Obama, but it seems beyond terrorist targets, now they've actually started attacking government targets as well. So there seems to be a policy change and policy shift uh, because of changes in governments in different parts of the world. And this conflict uh, is, you know, the issue of allied, bo- allied bombing is just one of these issues, as we, as we said. But as I said, the conflict has been pe- festering since 2011. So that's approximately eight years now. And when you have a conflict for eight years, there have also been, for example, Turkey supported some groups earlier. They don't support those groups anymore. They still support some interests that they have. So people have been changing alliances. People's purposes have changed from completely removing Assad for some to, you know, having some kind of negotiation right now, maybe having a government still after Assad uh, or, you know, still having Assad's after this entire conflict gets over and trying to reach some kind of conclusion at some point. But I would like to have one word uh, or the last word from everyone in the panel as to what they think about before we have the conclusion. So we'll start with Rehan and go and, yeah. Well, adding to what you just said of how uh, regimes affect um, the Syrian conflict uh, in, in itself, is that uh, the fact that, for instance, uh, regarding a topic, uh, the United Kingdom, the Labour and the Conservatives had quite a huge argument about this in the Parliament, uh, according to whether these bombings were uh, uh, legal under international law or not. Uh, I do believe that it would have been different if Jeremy Corbyn uh, is a new Prime Minister, which might have well happen. Uh, furthermore, if uh, in France uh, Marine Le Pen was elected instead of Macron, it would have been quite different as well. So what I'm trying to say at the end is the only consistency that we can see in, in terms of regime or we can predict would be from Russia, Iran and Turkey because we already know that the same people in power will remain in power for quite some time. For quite some time. Robert? Thank you, Rehan. Yes. Uh, well, I, I believe that the, the Syrian issue is highly complex both legally and politically and there are many sides to it and uh, many opinions both under international law and, uh, both and under the, the policies of many countries. I'm personally looking forward to the OPCW's investigation report. That would lead the international community to further decide on this issue and to to confirm whether the, the Allied bombings were legitimate or, or not. Thank you. Any other last words? Uh, I would like to say we need to see how far the conflict will go more. And then we need to, uh, because of this conflict, also Europe is suffering because of refugee crisis. And we need to see how uh, authorities can manage with the refugee crisis and all this conflict with regard to Syria. So I I personally hope that it could be fine soon, but there is uh, no possibility to conclude this conflict very close. Yes, I mean none of us can predict yeah. conflicts. These are not something that uh, you know we can do right now. I would like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast this week. Next week, we'll look at the Korean Peninsula and especially the summit which will take place on Friday between Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, and Moon Jae-in, the South Korean president. 
this is an historic event because this is the first time a North Korean leader is actually crossing the border to visit South Korea. So we'll look at how this develops and we'll provide more information and hopefully you enjoyed our show this week. See you next week. Bye-bye.